So anyway, like it's like we've been we're almost done. It's been all night. Like we're out here fucking covered in mud, you know, and uh, and the sun is coming up over the hills and we hear this noise from under there. Sure. Like and I'm like under there. I'm like, Miss Gaga, I'm not sure she was dead. And she just looks at me and says, well, she's going to be now. Right. And you play it right down the middle. Play what right down the middle? Your grandparents are half black, half white on one side. Your other grandparents. This was your all black grandparent, right? Miss Lady Gaga? Yes. Lady Gaga is, <laughs> is my all black grandfather. Little known, little known fact. Adds a whole new dynamic to her performances, doesn't it? it? does um a little bit um of a relief because you know there was some kind of appropriation and stuff going on there before but um i think that's just called white people making music Welcome, 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 nerds and nerdettes. Welcome, obscurials of all shapes and flavors. You're listening to the, the Nerd, Nerd Obscurial Podcast. Podcast. Hi, I'm Eric. And the Oklahoma Kid Rides Again! Directed by Luke Warren. Fuck Zach Braff, because I'm the Pikachu of doing Let's just get them all out, right out of, get them right out right, of the gate. All right, all right, shoot game. them on out, because right. you can't cage the rage. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you are going to get a suit. I don't know why. That's just one of them. Is, I, it, is that one of them? It's one of them, and I don't really know why it's one of them, but it is. It wasn't really on my radar as one of them. I, I feel like we're kind of done. Muggle, please. Okay. Oh, nice. See? Um, I, I feel like you have a lot more, but if you're ready just to move on. Let's do it. Odyssey 2. So Oklahoma, he is the, the brainchild. He is the... Um, technical one he's the george harrison of the beatles you know what i mean like like when you listen to something like uh within you without you Mm -hmm. um and the sitar work and just the utter change of sound that was made like that wasn't really in john or, or paul that was all george and 
he was able to take them in technical directions, like yeah. just just by his ability to know the sitar. And well, and it's I noticed it's a funny thing, way behind the curve. But I uh, yeah. recently, in the recent past, finally got Rock Band, you know, the video game Rock Band, oh, okay. drum, yeah. the drum controller thing, you know, where it's the fake little drum set, right? And the cop and a and a copy of the the one they did that was just the Beatles. The interesting thing is, so you're, you know, you're playing along with all these Beatles songs, you know, I'm using it to teach myself drums and I've realized going, you know, going through a whole bunch, cause it's got like a ton of them on there. All my favorite Beatles songs are George <laughs> songs. And then one of my favorites, it's a goofy one, but I just love this song and it's a ring. It's Ringo's Ringo. song, Octopus Garden, man. Yeah. That song's got some, some great little country licks in there. Yeah. No, it's, it's a it's fun a, song. It, I, it's one of those extraordinary things that really, uh, all of them on their own could have been life changing musicians, but to have the whole set. I, I just think with the technical thing, like I was saying, that like in Ringo's a whole other ball of wax, and um, I, I'm not one to slag on Ringo at all. I think he's actually pretty integral. And oh yeah, he's a drummer, and what drummers are, they're the fucking backbones of everything. And he gets so underappreciated. But anyways, you have to do all the technical side, the editing side. I just have to sit here and look pretty. Luckily, it's a audio medium. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll we'll save the performance evaluation on that part for after after the recording. So I I got from Oklahoma two versions of Autosode One. One was I, I guess a little bit more typical of what uh, episode would be. Mm-hmm. You know, it had the segments, it had the things that we had done and kind of tried to chronicle it. Version number two. Okay, so also the big thing was that there was usual musical joiners in version number one. Yeah, I, I picked from the same pool that I use, that I have of joiner music right. that I do for the episodes. Version number two was not no. picked from usual ones. This was all... Original compositions. Did you recognize it? By Oklahoma. I did not. It was from uh, uh, The Passion of the Braff. <laughs> the, the Passion the of the, of Braff, the Braff video I made. Uh, I, I know. With the I know. <laughs> That's, Dude, do you want to go fucking behind the curtain on this? <laughs> so He sends me The Passion of the Braff. Um, but we hadn't seen each other for a while. So he just rolls by my house and puts it into our mailbox on a flash drive yeah. on a flash drive and uh, like my wife sees it but didn't recognize the vehicle he was driving so it was just this random and didn't see him actually doing any delivery so it's just cars speeding away and the mailbox known being being the, the the culprit and so she had the wherewithal to be like i think I think this was Oklahoma. I'm going to give this to you because I think that's what it is. While watching this thing, I was struck by the fact that if there wasn't that content and someone would have taken this flash drive and plugged it in <laughs> and watched, and watched video. this video, they would call the police immediately. <laughs> immediately. I did not know it was the passion of Zach Braff. Yeah, it was the music I made. But for the that music one. was awesome and weird. 
And that's what I really, I want the audisodes to be fucking weird. And I ended up saying I want to do both. Because in particular, uh, the Minecraft segment. Yeah, if you listened all the way through. So I wanted to, and then this was the other thing, being a 90s kid. It's like, let's make a fucking hidden track. <laughs> hidden tracks, yeah. so huge. So huge in the 90s. Nirvana, too. Like, there is some great, the golden age. Of, of hidden, hidden tracks. tracks. Yeah. We did the hidden track, right? Yeah. Um, You'll hear a little remix version of our Minecraft and, segment. Oh, man. Craft it's work it's it. so good. Yeah. I, and really, I think that's... This is the space I want to have for this. This is the space of just like... We're, I want the Odysseus to be one or two steps away from like... Chaos. The, <laughs> I think that's fun. I like being on that line. I like, um, Charlie Day said, comedy is running all the way up to a line before fucking falling flat on your face <laughs> over it. <laughs> That's what, like making it right up to that line. Like you're just right there and you're about to go over the line yeah. and then it's brought back and it's, it's that tension between going over the line and not. So that's where the episode should be. I agree. Although you and I have a different idea of what the line should be, and everyone of what has the line a different should idea represent. Of what comedy Not where is. the line should be, what the. But line and that's be. why everyone has different ideas of what comedy is. Yeah, your line is like you want to go up to that line. Like crossing that line would be saying something you're just not supposed to say, you know. And it's getting right up to that line of it. And to me, it's just like getting right up to that line of not making sense anymore. But that's just a, being complete. Like what the fuck, bad acid trip. Like that's. But that's what's <laughs> great about a duo act. And that's essentially what we are, right? Yeah. Um, is that the pull between us actually gets us into a place where, like, there is actual gold. Like, the pull between what you're at comedy-wise, what I'm at, where my norms are and where your norms are, how that tug-of-war game plays out mm -hmm. is actually what makes the best stuff a duo acts about a good relationship and that's any good relationship you pull each other to be actually the best that you could ever be exactly so i don't know where we're gonna go from here i feel like we do need to take a break we need to uh start moving on to something else if the if we think there's intro is i think we're good up. i think and we got it we can uh, I think we've nailed you know, it. move back on to something else so goddamn um, gold print it cut it Run it. Let's get some sick Oklahoma prog rockery, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Thanks, we're back. Oh, now, what? You, you're afraid to go on record about John Mayer raping a is that where this is? I just thought we were trying to get <laughs> back to any kind of normal conversation, but um, Look, apparently this rape is, is a serious issue. I, I think any rape is a serious issue. We don't need to have the quantifiers. Like you could put any quantifier there. Like Albanian rape is a serious issue here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, apparently John Mayer ain't taking it serious. Okay, uh, I'm going to try to preempt some <laughs> cease and desist letters. All right, we're back. When we say John four, Mayer three, uh, rape, 
This is for satire and comedy reasons only. We are not trying to make full allegations. We have no formal proof, and we will not be seeking legal counsel for the <laughs> rapes of anyone that John Mayer did. Now, if there's a <laughs> rape we can prove, I will gladly go down that rabbit hole. Um, You'd go down the rabbit hole of <laughs> rape. What you're and if, if John Mears is the perpetrator of that <laughs> rape, yes, I will do whatever I can to stop that action. But if someone else is raping someone who's a <laughs> you're cool with that. Because you said if John Mayer is doing it. No, I said I said if John Mayer is the one, like uh, original statement, we will go down the rabbit hole for any <laughs> rape that's happening. If John Mayer happens to be the one that the perpetrator of it then of course we're going to pursue that. But I'm not saying that we have any substantiable rabbit hole to go down that John Mayer is a <laughs> raper. You heard it here first, folks. Admitted book burner Eric the Troubadour has come out in public support of rape for non- <laughs> So we're back. <laughs> <laughs> um... And this is Coward. a segment <laughs> that we're calling <laughs> All That Jazz. Um, this is a segment that Oklahoma suggested, and it's, a, I guess, a little lesson, right? Kind of, that's the idea. And I, I, That was the I, idea. I said, like, if you're going no, to like teach this. a class on jazz song by song. I do like this because I do, I, I respect it because it's, there's a build here that I'm actually trying to make. Um, so... Last episode, we had Charlie Parker. Mm -hmm. We had Just Friends. An amazing interpretation. So, in a way, we have to respect the fact that Charlie Parker is an alien. He's a freak. He is on this other level and plane. And I guess a little backstory about the story of jazz. Charlie Parker, huge heroin addict. Famous stories of him is... And it's hard because it's almost glorifying it, but it's just one of those things that they talked about a lot that Charlie Parker would sell his saxophone, which if you're a musician, that's your fucking bread and butter. That's the biggest thing to you. Sell it for heroin right before a show. Go to a pawn shop, get a plastic one. Right yeah, there. he was basically this buying like a crude, toy. Crude, crude plastic. Like, he was selling. He was selling his actual musical instrument for heroin to to, to to be able to buy heroin before he would you know get high and then he would go and buy a toy version of his instrument, play and that, still blow everyone out of the fucking water at that club. Like yeah. just still be better than anybody else. Musically is kind of egalitarian. It's kind of like leveling the playing field kind of stuff. And that's Yeah, you could give you could you could have a ten thousand dollar guitar and give Jimi Hendrix you know a ten dollar one a shoebox with strings and right. he's still gonna fucking outplay you exactly you know because he's a musical genius Doesn't, that's you know how it levels it's the how field. well you play not levels the play it's field. not what your it's not the right. instrument you're playing but there's some very important things I guess I do want to set up here before first all music is the blues in Western culture if you're not talking about classical music and stuff pretty like that. pretty much yes all music is the blues. And this is a blues song. Hey, folks. Oklahoma Kid here, jumping in with a little bit of clarification, uh, correction, and some context. 
You see, we were so excited to talk about this song, we forgot to mention a few things, including the name of the song. So, it is called Fine and Mellow by Billie Holiday. Now that's the original album recording of it. Uh, It was written by Billy herself, and that was done in 1939, featuring, uh, if my research is correct, the backing band from her usual club that she played at at the time in New York. Um, It was the B-side, if you don't know what that means, look it up, to her more famous song, the anti-lynching ballad Strange Fruit. And if you're not familiar with that, definitely look it up. Now maybe some jazz, real deep jazz nerds can correct me, and no offense to real deep jazz nerds, just saying I don't have that level of knowledge. But to the best of my knowledge, none of the cats on that record are relevant to our conversation here. Because you see, Eric the Troubadour has picked a very particular, and in the world of jazz, very famous, singular performance of this song. One night only kind of event. It's from a televised program called The Sound of Jazz. Uh, It was a concert-ish kind of program. Uh, I think they had some, like, interviews and other stuff mixed in. But it mainly was a bunch of performers coming out in different groups. They kind of mixed up and came out in different, different groups. They came out in different configurations and played a bunch of different songs. Now, they were all mostly people who were big during the swing era. So through the 30s up into the 40s. The big name, other than Billie Holiday, would have been Count Basie. That's the one you're most likely to have heard. He was kind of probably, the, I believe, the star of the show. His orchestra came out, started the show, did a lot of the songs. There were a couple younger musicians, the most notable of them being Thelonious Monk. But no, no Miles Davis, no Dizzy Gillespie, no John Coltrane. Uh, mostly just these swing guys. The old guard at that time. So, now there were a couple musicians who only played on one song. This song. And that includes Billy herself. It came on not last, but later in the program. Now, the other person that's important to know about here is Lester Young. So Lester Young was one of the two guys that if you were to say, who is the jazz saxophonist before Coltrane and Charlie Parker and anybody else bust out on the scene, it was him and a guy named Coleman Hawkins. They were the big names of this era. They had very different styles, and we're gonna talk about that. Now, here's the correction. You're gonna hear us say that the first If you Google this, uh, look up on YouTube, this performance, you're going to hear Oklahoma's wife opening and closing doors. What you'll also hear is Oklahoma's wife coming to the kitchen. But, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Oklahoma. Uh, Not Miss Oklahoma, Mrs. Oklahoma. Sorry. Ms. Oklahoma, yes. Well, I just meant not to confuse you with Miss Oklahoma as in the beauty pageant winner. You are much prettier than her. Um, Much, much prettier. You are going to hear us say that the first person playing a solo on this song, in this performance, is Coleman Hawkins. We were wrong. It is not. It's actually a fellow named Ben Webster. So he's the first person you'll see if you watch the video. And then he's followed by Lester Young. Now, Coleman Hawkins plays a little bit later, so let's hear a little bit of his solo.
because we're gonna compare the two uh, a little bit. Now, the thing you need to know in terms of the context is, and we're gonna mention this, but I'm gonna give you a little, little bit more of the story. When early in their careers, Lester Young and Billie Holiday met, they became practically joined at the hip. Now, Eric the Troubadour has his suspicions about their relationship, but as far as anybody has made public, there was never any actual romantic consummation of the thing. But these two were, by all accounts, practically soulmates. But they also were substance abusers. So, by the time 1957 rolls around, they've both been having their troubles, uh, you know, health troubles, financial troubles, all that stuff, the personal problems that comes with, of course, having a substance abuse issue. So they've fallen out of touch. And this is, this performance, this night, is the first time they've seen each other in a couple of years. So Billy comes out later in the show, starts singing, playing the song. And another thing is Lester Young, he was particularly not well at this point. And so they had actually originally wanted him to play during more of the program, but he, they just said, you know what? We'll bring a chair out on stage for you. You sit down during the Billie Holiday song, just do that one. Um, you know, we want you to take it easy. So Ben Webster plays his solo, and then Lester Young stands up and plays this. Just to finish out the story now, so we're not ending on a sad note, we're going to talk about what this all means and why this is something so emblematic and so famous of a jazz moment. But just to round out the story, this is also, by all accounts, the last time Lester Young and Billie Holiday see each other. So within two years, both Lester Young and four months after him, Billie Holiday, would die of complications of their substance abuses. So... As most people think of it, this is his final goodbye to his great soulmate, Billie Holiday. So now that we're all good and bummed out, back to the program, folks. This has got Billie Holiday singing, who is the most amazing vocalist in my mind ever. Like, Billie Holiday, it, you can't get better vocally ever. She's it. Camp Aretha, but I respect your opinion. It's my opinion. Just my opinion this has one of my favorite quotes ever, and I may have to pause after it. But, like, Billy has this quote at the beginning of this fucking song that's just epic and legendary. The blues, to me, they could be, you know, very sad, very sick, being very happy. There's two kinds of blues. There's happy blues, and there's sad blues. I don't think I play the same song twice sometimes a little slower sometimes a little brighter depends how i feel the blues is sort of a mixed up thing you just have to kind of feel it anything i do sing is part of my life lester young him and billy had a history yeah they were friends like their whole life uh, more not according to my sources uh, but there's 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 more than just a 
friendship there, I guess. E even if it's something where like they were just friends, they were never legally married, There's, but there was always something like a little weird romantic tension. Even I'm if not it saying, wasn't possibly that, could have that. I'm saying it's as far as anybody knows. The last time I checked, it's not consummated. It, no, no, but it's important for listening to this song and for for especially the visual when he stands up when he feels like he needs to like put up his best guard, even though he's kind of hurt. You know, it, it's important to know that right. that that there was even if it was never cosmic or there, there's this tinge of like romanticism maybe even if it's just platonic love but there's a real friendship there's a real like i will die for you you know yeah like, no I, they were like they, I yeah will, they you, were you're right or die kind from of, what i've heard yeah they friendship. were practically joined at the hip basically right. once very, they met. very close very intimate very platonic soulmates kind of thing. Yeah. yeah there's a there's a connection winton winton marsala said something that was really actually interesting on the jazz documentary yeah about them the describing orbit he said they were in the same orbit Yes, yes. Like, they were on this planetary orbit no one else was on, you know. They were the only two together. Mm -hmm. It was like everyone else was down below them, but they're on this plane yeah. together. Mm -hmm. Orbit's a really good way. Like, yeah. think about, like, an atom or, like, a solar system. Like, they're on that orbit. They're the the same electrons flowing in that orbit before right. the next level of yeah. the atom. His solo is jazz. And I want to... Lester Young's. Lester Young's solo there, right, right before Billie Holiday's vocals again. I want to bring it out as this contrast to the Charlie Parker. Because the Charlie Parker is fucking musically nuts. It's going all over the place. It's, you know, playing with this, that, and the other. It's doing all these things. It's making, you know, chaos out of this very kind of simple melody. Yeah. Lester here is taking these blues things, these blues things, and you can see like what Coleman did. Yeah. Because they're both saxophonists. Because I was going to say, it is interesting. It's like that bringing up, you said, you know, uh, the counterweight. Yeah. When you hear it and you hear these two and they're two that you can hear that you can tell the difference in these two kind of styles, mm -hmm. these two guys playing on the same song and you hear Coleman Hawkins and you're like, this is the next to last step that goes to the next step is Charlie Parker. Yeah. You got yeah, Coleman yeah. Hawkins and then like... You got Coleman Hawkins. And well, then, and actually, yeah. if, I, if I really um, think about Lester it... Lester Young is like... He's that well, link to the past. It's why I so, think it's so it's, important to bring him up next. He but also, I want sound. you to really... Like, the way he hits those notes. And that's the whole thing about jazz. The notes are part of it. Mm -hmm. The soul you put into those notes... That's the most important part. It doesn't matter if you're playing a million notes or you're just playing 10. Lester played like 10 notes there in that solo. And those 10 notes rock me emotionally more than maybe a hundred notes from fucking whoever you want to mention for other jazz people. Like that is jazz. That interchange that he has with Billy in that fucking blues song and those notes he hit. And it's one of the things why, I, like I said, I need to bring this as a counterweight to the Charlie Parker because you can play very few notes. Yeah. It's not just about being able to hit all those notes. Super jazz. And yeah. like that is super jazzy. He hit 
very few notes, but the way he hit those notes. What's really satisfying for those who get the visual on it, when you look at Billy's face. I was gonna say, she's watching him God. and she makes like facial act like responses yeah. that as if you're like when you're talking to someone and you go like, oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep, I get you. You're well, making no, it, it's and it's even more that than thing that. You could, like if you're if you have two people talking it, and they it's really like a get love each of other. their life kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It is something Well, where I was it's just like, saying, like you can see her facial move like she literally does like if you were a third person and you were watching two people who are just completely in sync and one of them's talking and the other ones, you know, like you know, you can see the agreement on their face that yeah. they are just like we said on the same orbit. She's doing that, like making like almost like she's listening to him talk to her mm -hmm. while he's playing his solo because he is. That's basically what he's doing. No, but, but and but and you can see her responding he like she gets it. He ultimately is playing his solo for her. Exactly. Like it's like it's it is almost like you're a part of this huge intimate moment between those two. Exactly. And, that, and you can see that on her face is the really yeah. interesting thing in the clip. Yeah. And yeah, that's jazz. Yeah. You, that that is actually for me like the heightened of jazz. Like you're getting this intimate moment between these musicians and like there's this amazing thing going on in between them. Yeah. And it's why I, I just, I love jazz so much for uh, the way that they allow time for solos. They allow that dialogue to happen between two people through an instrument, you know? Well, and that's the key. That's like kind of the key element that really gets brought into Western music with the advent of blues and jazz is this idea of adaptability. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and like you were saying, like the way you play them, there's an emphasis on the on like the interpretation of the of the musician. Like before, you had you know scores that were written. Right. You know, you had music for orchestra and for chamber groups and stuff, and it was about the composer. Right. And it was like. The, as a musician, your job was to execute it flawlessly to what was written on but the music. But we can look at exactly jazz, what Lester Young played, and no one will ever, ever be able to play the way he played that night with Billie Holiday and be able to have, like, there's a sweetness in his voice. Yeah. There's it's just like, like, oh, it's, it, it, like, touches you as well. Like, you're like, I'm falling in love with this man, <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> like, the it's, way he plays that horn. It's a change from, like, a, like a, yeah, it's like, with the, with the music before jazz and blues and stuff, it's, if you're playing... The, the what was considered to be like the top notch of, of musical performance was if you were doing it exactly the way it had been done before and before and before it was nailing at exact thing and with jazz like what you're saying with this Lester Young thing you get yeah. this thing of like no the pinnacle is creating that performance that can't be replicated yeah let's get beyond music let's get beyond jazz the pinnacle of art is creating a moment that's going to change people's lives who you have no idea who they are. The pinnacle of art is being able to make something that someone will listen to at some time and fucking change their lives completely. And they do that there. Yeah. No, it's a, yeah. And that, that, that for me is a pinnacle of jazz. What Lester Young was doing there with those simple fucking notes and just the 
God damn the way he played. Like, and I, I have 100% confidence no one will ever be able to recreate that moment. Ever. That's why it makes it jazz. That, that's why. It's because whatever is going on, you're never going to be able to do this again. Like, you are never going to be able to make this do what is going on here. Exactly. It has you're never that be X in factor. that place again. It's right. it's become it's so much more personal. Yes. For the musician. But for me, this was the next most important one. Like it's 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 crucial for you to get the just friends thing, in my opinion, if you're gonna understand jazz. It's crucial for you to understand what was going on there. But then to really get the full conception of the sphere here, you know. You have to get what's going on with Lester. You have to understand, like, he's playing a fucking simple, easy-ass part. Like, you don't need to be a jazz master to be able to play that. Just to be able to hit the notes at the moments, you don't need to be a master for that. It's pretty simple. Mm -hmm. But fucking Christ, that simplicity, and fucking Christ the way he is it. And that's even almost more jazz than what um, Charlie Parker was doing. Sometimes less means more, you know? Really, that's what it comes down to. Sometimes less means more. And when Lester was hitting those notes, less meant more. You saw Coleman, he did more, and he had a great solo, but honestly. That's not the one you're gonna remember from the song. Exactly, that's what I was gonna say. Honestly, who had the better solo? Honestly, between those two solos. Oh, Lester, yeah, by far. And that's jazz, baby. It doesn't matter the notes you're hitting, it's how you're hitting those notes. So it's it's an important lesson in my opinion. Like there's a very I, I was worried I was going too far with the Charlie Parker. It's like, oh the more notes you hit the better. No 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 no. <laughs> I understand jazz a little bit better than that. And that is not the case. <laughs> that should never be the case. These are important lessons you need to learn if you're going to understand jazz. No, it's not about how many notes you hit. Well, and that's not what the, I don't, I, that's not what I thought the example of Charlie Parker, what you were trying to get at with it. The point of playing that piece was not what I got from why you, why you brought that at one first is it's what he's really, the thing he's really exemplifying about jazz in that one is the joy of freedom in a way. The, it's, it's an interesting thing of like, Charlie Parker represents that aspect in that song, Just Friends, brings out that aspect of jazz that's like of the mind. You know, he's taking the song, he's saying like, here's this song, and the jazz, the framework of jazz lets you take this song, like, oh, this is what the song sounds like. Well, let me see what I can bring to that in terms of my creativity. You know, he's seeing like, what else can I add and embellish and, and... and mix up and like he's it's almost I know exactly where it's you're going almost to like he's doing a goddamn remix of the song thank in a God way we are friends because that's exactly the thing I'm trying to bring up you continue and with Lester Young it's like the thing of the you get that aspect of of jazz that is that soul of where it's like here's this song what can I put in this of myself of emotionally I just had a realization Charlie Parker is science, the brilliance of science. Lester Young is country wisdom. Both of them are true as fuck. Both of them are just like exhume wisdom and truth, but they're coming at it in a different way. Whereas like 
there's all of the notes, there's all of the other things going on, all the technology and stuff like that going on with science. There is country wisdom of like, and country wisdom maybe it's not the right word, but there's just, it's street smarts is another way of they, they, they talk about no, it. No, I can definitely see you know? country wisdom. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's simple, but it's pure. What Charlie Parker's doing is that aspect of jazz that's like going into the lab and doing all kinds of crazy experiments because you can do that. Like the jazz allows that. And Charlie before, Parker is before jazz, that wasn't really a is. thing. Yeah, exactly. Charlie Parker is proving what a black hole is. Charlie Parker is putting a man on the moon. Yeah. Lester Young is communing with nature. Yes. It's getting back to basics. Yes. You know, yeah. it's a, it's it's a hike through the forest. <laughs> Charlie Parker is is a is a is a crazy experiment in the lab. Lester Young is a hike through the woods. Yes. And kind of. Yes. Yeah, and the value of that. Like, the beauty when everything is in balance. Oh, that's the key. That's totally the key. I never thought of it this way. That is brilliant, fucking Oklahoma. That's the key. When everything is in balance, because Lester Young is in perfect balance with that song. Perfect balance. Right? There's nothing more perfectly balanced than his solo right there. And in nature, when everything is perfectly balanced, it's the most beautiful thing you could ever see. Yeah. Right? Better than going up into the stars and having fucking spaceships and all that kind of stuff, if that's what uh, our analogy to Charlie Parker is. I mean, spaceships. Spaceships are pretty cool. Nature. I imagine yeah. I've, I'm I have uh, I've not I've not personally experienced it. Yeah. Spoiler alert, but uh, I imagine I, have, I, have I imagine that the view from the space shuttle is. is I imagine the view from space to see the Earth is pretty it's fucking awestruck. Pretty, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty fucking amazing. So I'm not I, I'm not ready to rule that out as being able to have be a. An inner moment in that way, but you're absolutely right, and that that that's exactly it. That that is exactly it. It's jazz is science versus nature. It's like exploration and introspection. I think we should get a moment, and uh, then we will see you back on the other side. Soup song. Soup song. Okay, well, welcome back. Um, okay. Behind the curtain. Originally, I had this thought. And I called it Queen's Gambit. I was going to argue about a Queen musical. And Oklahoma was going to do a backstory about Gambit. And it makes more sense knowing that uh, we're playing chess. This is the whole thing. We're going to play a game of chess right now. Live. On the air. But. Like never before. Um, I, I didn't prep good enough for it. Oklahoma could knock it out of the park because he's fucking Oklahoma. But I am not ready for it. And so we decided. I had this other idea called High Noon at the OK Corral. Right? I thought you said shootout at the OK Corral. but Well. Most people associate a high noon with the shootout, yeah? That is true, yes. And it would be about, you know, 
Oklahoma talking about a, a couple of verses and uh, deciding who would be the winner. Then I thought, hey, let's mold the two. Let's do a Meld. high noon. Meld the two. Yeah, but you know, you have better hygiene than me. I'm much more used to mold. Right now we're going to do a high noon thing. But instead of it being the quick shot, it's going to be a game of chess. Now, we got some rules. You know, we always got rules. We always have to have things well-regulated, well-scripted, well-agreed uh, upon. Because Oklahoma will choke a bitch. And that bitch is me. Yes. So. <laughs> you are correct. So, the rules are this. Who's the dude who choked the coach? Spreewell? Spreewell. Yeah. Charles Spreewell. Pretzels would like to apologize to Pat Riley, the family of Pat Riley. Was it Pat Riley? Was that the coach at the time? No, I'm thinking of someone else. No, it was Pat Riley. It, it was, was Pat Riley. It was with the Knicks. It was yeah, with it was Charles Spreewell. Yeah. yeah, and as well, it's like Pat Riley, huge, iconic coach. Yeah. Like, it is like... <laughs> You know, if you choked out fucking, like, some no-name coach, it probably would never make the news. But yeah. it's like, oh, fuck, man. Welcome back to Sports Talk. I'm Dick Hartley. With me, as always, Abe Vagasian. Vagasian. Vagasian, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Ladies of Duke. <clears throat> so, what's our showdown this week? The showdown is going to be Iron Man v. Batman. Then I shall pick Batman. We all know you're going to be Batman. Of course I'm picking Batman, yes. You get an argument. You got one sentence to make your rebuttal towards that argument to try to mm-hmm. you know, disprove the other person. This is kind of like a court of law. Right. And then you got one sentence to put a little bit of fluff upon your argument and then give it to the other person. I am the white... Yes, you are. (laughs) ...side of the chessboard. And I am very white. Not going to deny it. So I get to make the first move. So Iron Man... Not only is he just a normal dude, which is like so rare within these universes, it's like, you know, everyone else has these all superpowers and stuff like that. Both these guys are just normal dudes. They are just normal guys trying to get out there and trying to do it. But like, Iron Man is also, he's got like a great sense of humor and like he's charismatic as fuck. Like you can see why he's the center of the Avengers. Because he's fucking... People want to be around him. And it's why Robert Downey Jr. Maybe wasn't the first choice when they were thinking about making the movie, but it's the only choice when it comes down to it. Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man because he's charismatic as fuck. He's fucking awesome. And people want to be around him. And people want to follow him into that next chapter. First off, I'm not gonna argue that RDJ is awesome, but Tony Stark is a dude in a suit, and other people can and have worn that suit and done what he does. Batman is a man who is dedicated 
every minute of his life, of his being, of his resources, of his energy, of his fortitude, since the age of eight. When he saw, when he witnessed an act, when he had his parents shot before him, which would spin most people into a horrible spiral of depression. Instead, he goes, no, I'm gonna go through the world's most intensive mental and physical training regime to make myself into the pinnacle of what a person can achieve, you know, and then go out and fight for the betterment of people. He attracts a lot of crazies. There's no joker to tell yourself. There's no like, oh, I am diametrically opposed to this person because he's this person. Joker doesn't exist without Batman. Iron Man's got his fucking villains, but those villains would probably exist without Iron Man. Most of Batman's villains are a direct reason for it. It is true. Batman attracts a lot of crazies. His, uh, the vast majority of his rogues gallery are uh, people who do not go to prison. They go to the insane asylum regularly and they all have very unhealthy fixations with him. Uh, to the point that often, they are less interested in actually committing some sort of crime than they are in just trying to engage okay. Batman. But that could just be because he's in Gotham City. Batman is the best because of the amount he puts into it. When it comes to resources put in, I think it is a little bit hard to argue that Iron Man doesn't put in enough. Iron Man puts in a lot of his resources. And I think if you look at the city he lives in, you'll see that there's a lot of resources Batman's not putting into. There's a lot of resources like, oh wait, at uh, Dark Knight Rises, he wasn't even putting in the money to the fucking orphanage that he started. Not only Iron Man puts in resources i'm not saying he's perfect with this but i will say that he puts in the resources that actually have to do with his town and his city and he watches after that a lot better than that first off dark knight rises is not mainstream dc canon it's its own standalone movie series i don't think we can fairly judge just how much the wayne foundation contributes to trying, improve, trying to improve Gotham City based on one film representation. Now, Batman, we've seen different bat, seen different bat suits and the idea that they have some certain level of armor, some kind of Kevlar mix to them that helps protect him. But at the end of the day, Tony Stark goes out there encased in steel. Batman, it's just him out there. At the end of the day, it's just him out there. No powers, no suit, no nothing. He's just, he really is just a dude. And to your argument, so is Iron Man. At the end of the day, that's just him out there. Mm -hmm. He's got all this fine mech, all this fine instruments. He's got this big billion dollar empire at his disposal. But just like Batman, it's just a dude in a suit out there. What Tony Stark does that Batman Tony Stark will actually inspire. He'll be able to rein in people. He'll be able to make people work better towards a common good. That Batman is really focused on Gotham. 
He's really focused on like just him and his immediate environment. Tony Stark, and rightfully so, is a little pissed off at um, little Spider-Man for following him. But he goes out in a little fucking space. He goes out to fucking the limit of what is expected of him. And he does what's good for everybody, not just what's good for to your point, first off, again, we don't have hard data on the extent of worldwide operations of the Wayne Foundation and the charities it supports. And Batman, as a member of the Justice League, has fought over the years a number of worldwide and extraterrestrial threats, has traveled interdimensionally to alternate parallel universes and Earths, and defended all of existence on a number of occasions. Tony Stark goes out in a suit that will repel tank fire. Batman goes out there in a slightly fancier level of bulletproof vest than our police have. Tony Stark goes out in his little suit that you're trying to miniature to the upper stratospheres of space. Mm -hmm. He is able to use that suit to go anywhere. He is able to not just focus on the people of Gotham. He can go anywhere in the world. He, and he goes to the upper echelons of the limits of his suit. And the other thing is that Batman does what's good for Gotham, does what's good for the immediate threat that he has with him. Iron Man not only does that, but also thinks about the rest of everybody else. It's not just about Gotham with him. He actually goes out and he will make suits towards the situations that it goes to, but also have other suits that are helping fucking Peter Parker in the middle of fucking nowhere. He is multitasking with his technology, not just focusing on what's happening in the here and now, but also where other things go. Again, Batman has also done plenty of that stuff. Secondly, think globally, act locally. Thirdly, anyone can get into that armor. Not anybody can do that. At the entire story of Iron Man and his arc during the Thanos story and the snap, the sacrifice he took. There's a demonstration where no, this isn't just a set of armor. Tony Stark was different as well. Tony Stark rejected what was easy and he intentionally went towards what was hard. And it was what actually was really great during the Thanos arc story arc mm -hmm. was that like tony was done with it and he was like no i don't want to be with it like i no, i'm not gonna do it i have a kid that i need to watch over and i'm not gonna be a part of this mm -hmm. then he figured out the fucking code and he couldn't help him. tony stark is someone who doesn't need it but he can't help himself because he knows it's the right thing to do Tony Stark, in the Thanos arc in the MCU, did at that one point make a very valiant, valiant self-sacrifice for the greater good. But while he was Iron Man, he's still out going to parties, banging supermodels, he's living a crazy life. Batman pretends to do that as Bruce Wayne, only the exact amount he needs to do to keep people convinced. The rest of his he will never no, I got it I got to interrupt you. You cannot say if, uh, you, if if we are using the sacrifice of Thanos. That point he's with Pepper Potts. He is not playboying. He has a kid. He's actually sacrificing his 
family is sacrificing that to be in the mix in the same My rebuttal to that is twofold, since you did interrupt my turn. One, at the same time, he's making this big sacrifice, and you can say, yes, he's doing this thing for this whole world, and he's giving up his family. But at the same time, if he doesn't do this, like, he's doing this also to protect his daughter, because she's going to be one of the casualties if he doesn't stop Thanos. So at the same time, he's not, like, saying, like, I'm going to give away my family and do this thing. At the same time, he also is doing this for his family. He's doing this to protect his kid, as well as a lot of other people. What I'm saying in terms of sacrifices, right there, even in that, he got to have a kid. He got to spend five years living the family life. Batman never gets that, period. He's given up every semblance of ever having a normal life. That's the thing. Tony Stark is the person, and he acts as Iron Man. Like, he goes, he puts on the armor, and he goes and bees Iron Man. But at the end of the day, he's Tony Stark. Batman goes out and acts as Bruce Wayne. At the end of the day, he's Batman. There's no Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is an act. Bruce Wayne is the secret identity. Batman is the real person. Bruce Wayne is the mask he puts on because he has given up ever being a normal person. Tony Stark can take off his armor, go home, kick back, have a drink, hang out with his friends and do whatever, like, he's still out there living a life. Batman goes back and works on being Batman. Like, it's 24-7 for him. He has sacrificed everything to live up to this mission of making sure that some kid doesn't go through what he went through. Trying to protect some stranger's kid from having that same experience that he had. Iron Man is doing it for everybody else. Batman is doing it because he needs to prove it to something, to somebody. He needs to prove the fact that, oh, you know, I'm worthy of these kind of things. Or like Iron Man is just like trying to make the best out of the situation. But it comes to the connection with the family. And I know that isn't necessarily canon and used a lot. But we're going to say in the MCU compared to the DCU. Oh, you didn't specify that at first. Well, no, I didn't. But with the MCU and the way that Iron Man is portrayed, I feel personally that there's a connection there. When it's 3,000, I love you 3,000, there is a point there that I will never have sympathy for Bruce Wayne but am on total fucking board with Iron Man. Keep busting. That is empathizing, and that is not what was the question presented. Batman is the best at fucking everything. Tony Stark is an amazing inventor. Batman is the best at fucking everything. The Nerd Obscurial Podcast is a Gadzooks and Nerd production. That's Gadzooks, G-A-D-Z-O-O-K-S. Find us on the web at gadzooksandnerd.com slash meow. Yes, meow, M-E-O-W. If you like the music, you can find more at gadzooksandnerd.com slash fields. That's fields, F-I-E-L-D-S. The Nerd Obscurial Podcast and its content are, except for the steal this joke joke, the wholly owned and copyrighted property of Gadzooks and Nerd. So don't go stealing any of it. 
Except, of course, for the steal this joke joke. Or we'll have to sick big pretzel on you. Any works, products, concepts, or otherwise intellectual property not owned by Gadzooks and Nerd, mentioned or discussed in the Nerd Obscurial podcast, are done so under fair use for the purposes of commentary, critique, and obviously, comedy. So please don't sue us because we can't actually sick big pretzel on anyone. The views, ideas, opinions, and beliefs expressed in the Nerd Obscurial podcast are solely those of its creators, which is to say your esteemed host, Eric the Troubadour, and me, the Oklahoma Kid, and do not represent the views, opinions, or beliefs of any individual or entity named, referenced, or alluded to in this podcast, including but not limited to Prince, Leonard Nimoy, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and its parent companies, the Buggles, Charlie Day and his parent companies, Lady Gaga, Ringo Starr, my wife and her parent companies, the great state of Oklahoma, and of course, all cats everywhere on the internet. Hail Cthulhu.
busting. Shoot the future, man, with the beat.